Welcome to Shoot Like a Girl, a podcast featuring interviews with extraordinary military women from around the world who push their limits on and off duty. I'm your host, Kate Stewart, and this is episode number 16. Today's guest is Captain Megan McDougall. Megan is a personnel selection officer in the Canadian Army. Before joining the Canadian Armed Forces in 2015, she completed a BA in Sociology and Psychology, a Master of Human Kinetics with a concentration in Consultation and Intervention, and a Master's Cert in Leadership. She also owned a yoga studio and worked as PSP fitness staff for the Canadian Armed Forces. In addition to working as an Army officer, Megan also has an online mobility and stretching program called Mindset on Mobility, during which you receive lessons on mental performance. Needless to say, she's a bit of a high achiever. We had a great discussion about her job as a PSO, her athletic endeavors, and the benefits of mental performance coaching. Steady, steady, nice and steady. Right, heel, I'm a steamroller, baby. I'm a steamroller, baby. Just a rolling down the line. Just a rolling down the line. I'm a steamroller, baby. I'm a steamroller, baby. Just a rolling down the line. Just a rolling down the line. So you better get out of my way now. So you better get out of my way now. Before I roll all over you. Before I roll all over you. Yeah, so we'll just jump right into it now. So Megan, thank you so much. Uh, We followed each other on social media for a while. So I'm super happy that I could interview you and have you on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I know it's, it's, I feel like we've been sort of connecting for a while. So it is nice to to like see your face. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And so I like to start off by sort of figuring out where people grew up and how they got into the military and their origin story, I guess you could call it. So where did you grow up? Yeah, so I um, I grew up in a small farming town for the majority of my life. It's uh, called Nanton. No one has probably ever heard of it. There's like 1,500 people there. And I lived there until I was probably like midway through grade 11. My parents moved to Canmore in Alberta, which is just west, like about an hour west of, of Calgary. And, but without getting too into it and being too confusing, I, I ended up staying in Nanton and living with my grandmother who actually ended up passing away as I was living with her. So I did a small stint in Canmore at the school there while I was in grade 12, but I ended up going back to Nanton to graduate with my friends. So majority of my life was, was growing up in Nanton, but my parents don't live there anymore. Like haven't been back there since, since high school. Okay. And that's in Alberta. Yeah, yes. Yeah, Southern Alberta, just south of Calgary. Okay, and did you have any family members in the Canadian Forces? No, (laughs) none at all. So I mean, other than like my grandpa, which like everyone's grandpa was in the the military. Uh, So it was like very um, unexpected. And even for my friends, I didn't really have a lot of friends in the military. So a lot of my friends that I went to university with actually like had an intervention with me. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. They were like, are you sure? Like, is everything okay? Like, are you sure you want to do this? Uh, so yeah, no, I didn't have any family members. I, um, I just, yeah, I had some, some outside influence, I guess I, I used to be PSP. So that was really like how I started thinking more about it. And, um, yeah, it was PSP. I was in the fitness department and then the sports department. And when I was in the sports department, my office or my little like cubicle, I didn't really have an office was right outside, um, an ex Perry staff. So the Perry staff were like the old fitness staff in the military, um, Mm -hmm. Tom Campbell, (laughs) and he's actually in the military again now, but so he was actually the one that started like poking at me and was like, you know, like you maybe would be good at the military or like, you should consider joining and he was the one who introduced me to the occupation of PSO. And then, um, yeah, and then I just was like, threw my hat in, um, applied. PSO is like kind of a hard occupation to get into. So I wasn't really expecting. I tried for PSO and I tried for social worker. And yeah, I got picked up for, for PSO. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I was wondering if PSO was direct entry or if it was one of those trades that you had to transfer over from something else. Yeah, it is direct entry. So they took one, like they don't take a lot. So they took one my year. 
and but it's really specific so if you're coming off the street to be a pso you need a master's in industrial organizational psychology which is like who has that i don't right. have that um I, I have a master's degree but i had to get actually a waiver to get into the calf so i had uh, an exception made for me but if you're in the calf it's it's a little bit easier you need an undergrad in psychology but if you're coming off the street you do need a graduate degree mm -hmm. and they don't take a lot Right. Yeah. It's just one of those trades that you hear about it a lot, but you, a lot of people rarely meet PSOs. And for those people listening, I guess, if you're not in the military or if you're yeah. from another country, PSO is personnel selection officer. So do you want to just give a quick little blurb on what they do? Yeah. So it's actually really different depending on the occupation or like the, where you're working, what uh, actual job you're in. So Everything in, P in the PSO world is grounded in psychology. So like our little cap badge symbol is the Greek symbol for psychology. And you can bet regardless of the job that you're in, you're going to probably be linked to selection somehow. Definitely uh, a lot of counseling roles, research, policy, teaching. But like someone on the base, for example, so like base in Victoria, they will be primarily doing counseling and selection. For me, I don't do any counseling. I'm in more of a like mentorship role. I'm I'm way more in policy. And then if you go to Ottawa, you could be, you know, advising senior staff officers, or you can go to Kingston and be teaching at RMC, the, the military college, or like any occupation that for the most part that has an assessment center, you have some sort of PSO involvement in terms of running selections. So it's really, it is really different. Everything's grounded in psychology. Everything's grounded in selection. We're supposed to be the selection sneeze, quote unquote. Yeah, it's super different. Like the job I'm doing now in recruiting is entirely different from what I did on the base. And, and you can't even really compare them. They're just so different. So you would be talking to new recruits coming in the door and trying to find out where they should go. Is that the idea? Well, not exactly. So without like boring you. So in uh, recruiting, they have recruiters who are usually the sergeant rank and they're like the front line and they're the one who, who are talking to the applicants at first. And mm -hmm. then if you get past a recruiter, you'll get sent to a military career counselor. So an MCC and they're usually captains. There are some um, non-commissioned like NCO, senior NCOs. Um, and then they also have like file managers and they're usually like corporal rank. So my job is to make sure they are all doing their jobs. Right. So they're following the policy. Like we have, um, you know, certain eligibility criteria, certain uh, suitability criteria and regard whether, whether you're a recruiter and MCC, you need to be sort of following these guidelines. So it's my job. I do like spot checks on them. The PSO does all the training um, if there was like an issue, so like someone um, like has a weird tattoo or has like credit issues, those get bypassed from the sergeants and the captains and they come to, to me, if that makes sense. Okay. But if you're on a base, you're doing interviews, which is like you're doing one-on-ones uh, -on with members. So like, I don't, I don't see applicants. I never see applicants and I'm only advising military members who are doing the interviews, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So you're sort of overseeing that whole process there. Yeah. I'm like trying to keep the integrity of the recruiting selection process. And, and they always say like the, I'm, I'm trying to keep the CO out of jail. So I'm the CO's advisor. If there's something weird in selection, I'm going to say like, here's what the policy says. Here is my recommendation. And then he can sort of choose whatever he wants to do in, in these like gray areas. If someone has a lot of credit issues or if someone has, you know, a criminal record, um, those are the files that I initially see. And then I make a recommendation to the CO, but I'm also guiding the MCC. Okay. This is what you can say to them. This is what you can't say to them. This is the policy that we need to follow. Mm -hmm. All <laughs> of these different branches that you can branch out to in the PSO world, which one that you've done so far is your, has been your favorite? I loved being on the base. I loved counseling and feeling like I had an impact on people's careers because you really do. You go through the process with them, you screen their application process, you do their interview, and then you find out what happens. So usually they'll come back to you and they'll say, ah, like I was selected. So it's really, it's really gratifying in that sense, being on the base. So I loved that. 
Um, but I love the autonomy I have uh, being in recruiting. So I don't have really a, a lot of people looking over my shoulder. I get my work done. Nobody really, really um, checks up on me. Like I could be doing nothing all day and people would just like, they, would, they wouldn't know because no one is like, what are you doing now? So like, I love the autonomy that I have in this job. Um, so there's aspects of both that I like being in recruiting and being in, in selection, but I don't know if I could pick between the two of them. There's both, there's also things that, that I don't love about being on the base. Like on the base, you have a major, you have, you know, office hours are here at this time. Whereas now I just love that I'm able to sort of work and get my own work done without anybody sort of picking at me. That's probably one of the things that a lot of people found during COVID working from home as sort of a bonus for them, because I think now a lot of businesses will realize people can work from home and still get their work done. You don't need to be yeah. breathing down someone's neck all the time. Yeah. And that's just it. Like I, I am very disciplined. Like I still start work right at eight o'clock. Like I take like a sh my short lunch break at 12. Like I still follow my normal day. I'm still working from home and a lot of people aren't but I think because the CEO knows that I am actually working that, uh, that they've continued to let me work from home, which is super nice. Awesome. So just jumping into, I guess we'll stick on the topic of PSOs. That was sort of, um, I was planning on talking about that a bit later, but sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. How did you, I know you said that Tom Campbell was his name that he yeah. was sort of poking at you to, to join but how did you specifically pick the PSO trade? Yeah, so I had never heard of a PSO before. Um, so he was the one who told me about it. And then I just started researching it and the occupation lines up with my education. So I do have a counseling degree uh, in my graduate degree is a counseling degree. And then I just met with PSOs. So the ones that were in Victoria at the time in Esquimalt, I just like emailed them and said like, hey, can I come ask you some questions about your occupation? So that was really like, I just did my initial research. Um, and yeah, I just thought it would be a good fit based off of what I had done before in my education. Okay, and then how long is the training just going from basic military officer qualification yeah. to being a, a fully qualified PSO? Yeah, so I think it's changed, but when I did it, it was a three month, um, on-site course in Borden and then you had a year-long OJT. A year being supervised is way too long in my opinion. It was like you could you literally could not do anything without someone sitting in the room giving you feedback so you're like really feedbacked out by the time that year is up yeah. um, and like the first time you get to like close your office door and not have someone sitting there it's just it's the best but so I think they've shortened the training They've definitely shortened the OJT. I want to say it's something like six months, but it was a, it was a full year, like almost to the date. Um, and then there was people that got extension. So people going longer than a year. So you are, and I, what I think they realized is you're just a huge administrative burden mm -hmm. <laughs> doing that. So I think it's now, I want to say it's like they've cut the, the actual in-house portion by half or they've split it. Um, and then definitely the, when you're on base, that's much shorter than the year. Yeah. Cause it would tie someone else up for that entire year too, because then yeah. they're doing their own work and then making sure that you're doing that work. Yeah. And you get evaluated every time. So it's not just mm -hmm. someone watching you. It's someone so you're showing them your prep before. So let's say an interview is an hour and a half. So you meet at least a half an hour before to go through the file with your, whoever's like looking after you. And then you go through it and then you take a break and then you go through it again with the person like before your applicant leaves. And then you have a full debrief afterwards. So it's a lot for whoever's supervising you. I mean, I had a really tough supervisor. She was very meticulous. So it actually served me really well. But by the end of it, I was like, okay, like I don't want to hear anymore. Like I talk too fast. I get it. Like I didn't let them talk. Like there was a, as I was going through it. Um, yeah, I was just ready for it to be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really long time. So one of the questions that I had, because, you know, you hear the rumor mill of people going through selection for their certain jobs that they want to do. And then if people don't get picked up, they're like, oh yeah, you know, it's uh, so-and-so doesn't like me or whatever reasons <laughs> people have. Right. And I'm sure you've probably heard them all as well. Yeah. So 
what do you guys do to ensure that there's no bias during an assessment center? Yeah, that's hard. Honestly, um, first of all, before any assessment center, and you can probably attest to this, is, is there's a lot of training that goes into the staff of an assessment center. But as a PSO, and the reason that we are required to have a degree in psychology is, is the fact that we have training in bias. So bias is something that you know, it's, it's not, you're not ever going to be perfect with it, but whether it's like recognizing, and I think we still teach this, it might be different, but like the horn halo. So, you know, like the candidate does something good. And then all of a sudden you want to mark them higher on everything, or the candidate does something sh crappy right off the start. So then you want to mark them low, lower or like the primacy effect or the recency effect. Like this is all stuff that we have training in and really just being aware that, the, that bias is a thing. And then trying to teach the staff, hey, just because this guy plays hockey and you play hockey doesn't mean he's going to be a great whatever occupation. So really, we try to be the honest broker and really we try to teach whoever is actually running the assessment center, the staff of the occupation, that these things even exist in the first place. And once you realize they exist, then you can start to overcome them. But, and again, I haven't been on every assessment center and I know they're all quite different, but the ones that I have been on, the scoring is very objective. So it's like, did you see something or did you not see something? And it doesn't, so the feelings don't really come into it. Of course, it still happens where it's like, oh, this is, this guy is such a good guy. Like the amount of times it's like, oh, sorry. Like we're all out of good guy cards today. Right. Um, it is objective. We do try to be the honest broker. It is really hard though. Cause I will say, and as you know, the military is a small place. So sometimes the occupation that's running the selection, they know the people that are coming in and they're rooting for people. So it's like constantly monitoring and reminding like just because this guy's a good runner doesn't mean he has the cognitive ability to do the job correctly. So it's a lot of like reminding, reining people in, trying to gain the trust of the assessors in the first place so they buy into the process and, and to ensure that they're scoring in an accurate way. So it's just like having a presence, like actually being there to watch some of the stands or watch some of the, the activities that are going off. And then, and then if the, the staff are marking all over the map, it's like, okay, like, why did you assign this score? Uh, so I want to say it's like, overall, it's like being an honest broker, but it's also being an educator and teaching uh, the staff members to be aware of all of the pitfalls that can happen just because of human nature. You know what I mean? It's not that they're not smart enough or they're not PSLs, so they don't know. It's just like, this is part of being human is having biases, but here's all the different types of bias that you can have. Like, let's try to not trip up on it so much when we go through the process. Mm -hmm. And then if there were, say, assessors marking, say, their friend really high all the time or someone they didn't like really low all the time, that's something that as a PSO, you guys would pick up on. And yeah. And the, that out. again, I, not all assessment, I'm not, I'm not totally familiar with all, but the ones that I have been a part of, everyone has to disclose who they know. So there's a, before we get the names of everyone that's going to be on the assessment center or on selection, and then all of the staff that are taking part have to go and mark, like, I know this person, this is like, like a family member, like a friend, like an acquaintance, like they're supposed to rank how well they know them. And then those people will try to avoid to the best of our ability, having them assess them in the first place. Mm -hmm. So there's really like, when I say there's, there's training before, like a lot of people don't know how much work goes into running an assessment center. But if you know, like I have a buddy on this course or I have a friend on this, on this selection, chances are you're not going to get an opportunity to even assess them in the first place. But yeah, if there's, there's scores all over the map, like there's definitely a recalibration period that needs to happen. But in the training, the assessors are practicing scoring. So when they get to selection, it won't be the first time they're, they're trying to pick up, like, did I see something or did I not see something? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that whole trade and all the work that goes into that and doing the assessment centers and all the different things that, that you look for during that. It's so interesting and fascinating to me. And it's a lot. And, and like, and it's, it is interesting, like, even again, I've only been part of the clearance diver that NTOG and I've witnessed the closed protection one. I wasn't, I wasn't an assessor on it. I just watched it. But like, I know that we do things different than, you know, um, the source handlers do something or the conduct after capture or the special forces, like everybody does things different. Um, So yeah, there's lots of different ways to get to the same end result, but I definitely like if I would guess that it's like always objective, um, always teaching and um, And yeah, and just creating an awareness over those basic psychological concepts that can can get in people's way. Mm -hmm. So were you always involved in this, I guess, do you call it mental performance or mindset coaching? Yeah, um, I I don't want to say I was always involved in it. um, Or interested, I guess. Yeah, like I, that's what my education is in. So my graduate degree is it's in human kinetics with a concentration in consultation and intervention. And that's a real mouthful. But if you like think about what that says, it's consultation. So counseling and intervention. So intervention strategies, and it's directed towards uh, athletes for the most part. So that was, I did my, I want to say like 2012, I did my graduate degree. So ever since then, yeah, like it's always been a big part of my life, but even for anyone who plays sports or like athletes, meaning, you know, you take your fitness seriously, I think mental performance always comes into play a little bit, but I, I, so as an athlete, I definitely think I did things, maybe not to the extent once I learned, oh, this is actually what mental performance is Mm -hmm. in a like educational academic setting, um, but yeah, I would say to answer your question, probably since 2012 is really when I started to get or 2010 or whenever I started that program. Okay. And then, so what year did you join the CAF? I went to basic in 2015. Okay. So you were doing all of that before you even joined the CAF. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually like, I was, um, I owned a yoga studio, um, actually in Halifax or Dartmouth and, um, and then I moved from Halifax. I did this program and then from Ottawa U, which is where this program was, I moved to Victoria. And then that's when I got the job with PSP. Okay. Oh, interesting. Which yoga studio was it? So it was a Moksha studio. So okay. again, they're no longer there at the Moksha studio. I, I think they're called Shanti. Yeah. The one on Portland street there. The one that I owned was in the old Woodlawn Mall Mm -hmm. library area. So that was the one I was part of. And then I taught on the one on Spring Garden, okay, um, like Dresden Row. Right. Just right across from Pete's Boutique. (laughs) Yeah, I used to go. I'm from Halifax originally. So I used to go to both of those actually. Yeah. So so those would have been the the ones that I was at. Um, I was at the Halifax studio a little bit longer. And then I was, I I owned the Dartmouth studio for a period. And then I left the Dartmouth studio when I went to, um, to do my graduate program in Ottawa. Okay. And so this interview is sort of all over the place, but that's okay. No, no, that's, that's, uh, that's (laughs) my fault. I'll take extreme ownership for that. So were you always involved in athletics growing up and throughout your sort of high school, college years? Yeah. So I guess one of the really good things about growing up in such a small town is you really have the opportunity to play whatever sports are available. Um, And it's funny because I see my nephews now and they're getting like you know, cut from basketball teams. And there's like 70 kids trying out for these teams. It's like my graduating class had 14 people in it, like literally any sport. Like I started swimming competitively swimming when I was eight. And then as soon as there was uh, in grade six, I think you could start playing volleyball, basketball. I played, I did ringette. Um, I, I tried rugby for a bit. I did cross country, like whatever sport there was, I was put in and it's just like, that's what you did. (laughs) You know, like that's what my friends did. That's what, uh, so yeah. So my whole life, I literally from the age of eight, I was, I was competing competitively. And then I went to, and I played in college and I played in university and then I sort of play now. I'm kind of in retirement though. (laughs) Uh, Okay. But you played SISM basketball, right? 
Yeah, yeah. The SISM had their last tournament, I guess, in 2019. So there hasn't been anything since then. Right. Yeah, Prior because of because of Prior COVID, which originated yeah. which originated in Wuhan, which is where your tournament was, right? Yeah, yeah. So really funny because it's like no one in the world had heard of Wuhan before. And then so we were like, where are we going? And now it's just like a household name almost. So Right. So that was another question that I really wanted to ask you because I can remember years ago when I was in Shearwater, I had kind of inquired about, you know, is there any women's basketball available? Because I kept seeing emails for, you know, the basketball team, but it was the men's team. And they they kind of wrote back and they're like, not really. Like if there's enough interest, maybe we can get something going. And I didn't really pursue it anymore after that but then it, it was so interesting because then when I looked at your pictures I saw the SISM women's basketball team <laughs> so yeah. do they have you know base teams and regionals and everything with basketball so no <laughs> yes and no so um women's basketball is very new in the calf like when I came in I want to say in 2016 because I went to the worlds in San Diego I think in 2016 with the team and that was their first year competing So there isn't enough interest right now to have base teams. If there was enough interest, 100%, I'm sure that they would put something on. Right now they have, and I I haven't been to one, but they put on like the Western development camps or Mm -hmm. Eastern development camps. And they're really trying to, you know, promote the program and get girls playing. So, uh, you know, anybody, if you want to play, um, so, but a lot of girls will play with the men's team. Um, and then, yeah, it's kind of hard because you need to be at a SISM level, but you really a lot, like you need to go find a team to play with, which Mm -hmm. is different from a lot of the other programs. Yeah. It's different, I guess, too, when you're an adult, like, where do you, where do you play if it's not in school? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I think a lot of the men's others, a lot of men's league there's here in Okotoks. Like I, um, again, everything shut down, but like asking to play with like some of the university teams or the Mm -hmm. college teams, like just to, to be sort of an extra body on the floor. Um, but it's, it is, it is hard. You do have to sort of seek out some sort of rec league to keep your skills up yeah yeah it's so interesting in the calf how compared to other countries the I guess the culture and um, the money and the opportunities with sport I just find it's not really there yeah and it's honestly it's so hard to play against some of the other countries because they're that's their job you know what I mean like in China, their military team is their Olympic um, prep team or like Brazil, like the Olympics, they are Olympians and then the military hires them so they can get paid as, you know, professional athletes. So a lot of the teams that we're playing, that's all they do. Like their job is to play basketball. Whereas Canada and like uh, um, Germany, like there's very few militaries where it's like you are a soldier first, your occupation first. And then if you're lucky and you get the time off and you're able to play, then you get the opportunity to go play sports. So it is very different. Right. Yeah. I just interviewed Riley Compton. She's on the U.S. developmental bobsled team and she's in the she's in the U.S. Marines. But I think the army and the Navy might have different programs. I know the army definitely has some high level athlete programs, but for the Marine Corps, she's like, I'm still working. Like I'm taking this time off to go to these competitions, but I've got my work laptop and I'm doing calls and, and all of this stuff while she's competing around the world. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause like though, when we went to San Diego for worlds, like you could see some of the girls from the other countries, like you could see the creases in their uniforms from like them being folded. Like, I swear they pulled them out of the packages, threw them on (laughs) for the first time. So it is, it is really different. And it's so, it's such a different level of play being up against someone who's an Olympian. Like, how do you, how do you compete with that? You you can't, it is tough. Yeah. But I mean, good, good travel opportunities and good competition. Yeah. And like, it is really fun to, to try to keep up. Like when we went to San Diego, um, 
we kept Brazil within 20 points, which is like, it does sound like it's still 20 points is a lot, but to keep a bunch of Olympic past Olympians uh, to 20 point game, like it's really good basketball. And it's really fun when, when, you know, when you're not getting annihilated by a team. And then obviously the opportunity to meet girls across Canada, like the SISM program, there's females that I have met and that I'm great friends with that I never would have met otherwise. So that alone is worth it for me, even if we go and get, you know, like the crap kicked out of us uh, Mm. overseas. Yeah. And I mean, when else would you have the opportunity to play against Olympic athletes? Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's like, sometimes they were like in awe of, of them out on the court. It's uh, it is, it is a really good opportunity. So keeping along that fitness line, I guess you were already pretty active and fit when you joined the CAF. So did you have any problems keeping up during basic training or with any of the PT? No, I, um, I felt like I was pretty prepared for basic PT wise. I was top athlete out of the males and females for the officer platoons. So I didn't feel like it was a, a big challenge at basic at least anyways yeah Mm -hmm. so what does top athlete involve so yeah so basically throughout basic they put us through you know well obviously the force test there's force test at the beginning force test at the end and then there's just basic challenges that you that you do so then they take scores and then you're sort of ranked against everyone Oh, so you joined when it was the force test, not the old express test. Yeah, yeah. So I was PSP when it was the express test. Well, actually, it was the first year of the force test. PSP still had to do the express test to get hired. Like I had to do the express test and get a certain score. Um, But yeah, it was the force test. Thank God. So other than yoga, what did your training program look like? For basic? Honestly, I just... I walked a ton before basic. That was like the one thing it was like, you are going to be on your feet all day. Uh, Not necessarily running all the time. I didn't have a running program. You know what I mean? I went to the gym. I, I think I did a little bit of CrossFit at the time, but to prepare for basic training, I walked like I walked a ton, you know, like how, you know, 12 K a day. Uh, so then it was, it wasn't a shock to me when I, when, you know, we're constantly walking or standing or doing whatever at basic. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good thing. I didn't really even, I mean, other than I guess rucking, but even just plain walking would be beneficial for people. <laughs> yeah. Especially now standing all day. So I, that's what I made a point to do is like, I'm going to be on my feet for a really long period of time. Um, And so that was like the biggest change for me. I just like kept up my normal fitness routine, but then I would go on hours and hours long walks uh, with my dog. And that was like, that was me (laughs) training. Well, I'm sure the dog enjoyed that benefit too. Yeah. Yeah. What does your PT program look like now? Yeah, it's pretty tame. I have a torn labrum in my uh, shoulder. So I was doing CrossFit uh, for a while, but I don't do that anymore. So I I do a, it's a physiotherapy program. It's online programming. So I just do it in my garage. It's, you know, takes an hour a day. So it's nothing, I'm not doing anything crazy by any means. Gyms are still open here. I could go to the gym, but we have sort of a setup in our garage. So I, I just choose to, you know, get in and out. So yeah, I'm getting a little old, so (laughs) do my hour and that's it. So what does their rehab look like for the shoulder? Yeah, so it's just a lot of strengthening, a lot of like just overhead carrying, a lot of band work, um, nothing, uh, nothing crazy. Like I, I, in CrossFit, you, you know, like you would snatch. I don't, I don't snatch for the longest period. I wasn't pressing anything overhead. Um, but now, you know, I can lift not a lot, but so it's just basically building up the muscle strength around, and then hopefully I won't need to get surgery on it. Yeah. I have a friend who actually, that's why I was kind of curious because she just had surgery for it last year, but she's still finding that the surgery wasn't really that successful and she's still very limited in what she can do. Yeah. And that's so, that's unfortunate because when I went to the surgeon, he asked me what, like, what, what does my fitness routine look like? What am I active? And then after he sort of sat with me for whatever, 15 minutes, he was like, honestly, if we do the surgery, which we can, it's one, it's an awful recovery Mm -hmm. Two, like, you're not going to be able to be as active and three, it might not even do anything. And then you're in the exact same place after you've done a long recovery. 
So he was like, I want you to commit to a physio program for whatever X amount of months. And if you see no improvements, here's my card we will operate. But if you see improvement, I want you to keep doing that because I just don't think surgery will be good for you. Uh, so I'm like very grateful, you know, this guy, who knows how much money he makes, like just by putting somebody under the knife. Right. So I was very grateful. Like I have his personal card, like I can have surgery at any time, but he was very much like, I want you to commit, like, and actually do a physio rehab program. And then let me know if it, if you still want to do this. So that's unfortunate that your friend was sort of put under, I don't, I mean, who knows what the conversation was, but Hmm. I definitely like the surgeon really pushed me to not do it. Yeah, that's really good. And I feel like so many times, I mean, I don't know, just from sort of personal experiences or what I've heard from other people, doctors seem to go for that quick fix or just stop doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just don't work out. Anyway, so um, I, what's nice, like being in Calgary, like it was a UFC doctor, like we don't really get to see, uh, we have one military doctor out here that cycles around Southern Alberta, but for the most part, if we want to see a doctor, we just get referred to a civilian. It's actually like so nice, like going to the dentist. I'm like, oh, like it doesn't actually hurt. Like, cause they actually have like really good bedside manner. <laughs> They're not just like digging at your teeth. I'm like, oh, this is what it's supposed to feel like. I did my annual dental back in the summer. So in August and they're like any other issues or complaints. Like I was fine. It was just the annual get my dive log signed, but I'm like, well, I'd really like a cleaning. It's been two, two years (laughs) or whatever. And they're like, yeah, unfortunately, you know, because of COVID we're really backed up. So we're only doing cases that really need it. So, you know, unfortunately, since your teeth are good, like you're probably going to have to wait a while longer. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to have to go and like pay a civilian dentist to do that. Yeah. And at the dentist here, they're like, um, I'm going to send something to your dentist. You can come back in six months. Like it's so different. Oh, so it's, yeah, so it is, nice. is kind of nice. It's hard that like no doctor, no one knows what to do with you as a military member to mm-hmm. like, bring this form. Like, and so nobody knows what to do, but it is nice to have, you know, that you're going and getting like expertise, like seeing a doctor, a U of C senior surgeon, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I, you know, that you're getting someone who's good. Mm-hmm. So then circling back to like your training program and what do you call it? Mindset coaching, mental coaching? Yeah. You know what? I like change it. Like I, I think what's most common, commonly used, I would say is like mental performance okay. coaching um, or like, yeah, mindset training, but there's really no standardized. That's a thing in Canada. Like if I were to go to the States right now, I could call myself a sports psychologist, but in Canada, it's really different. So I'm not a psychologist. Like Mm -hmm. I don't have my PhD in psychology. So Canada there, there's really no regulation. Like anyone can say they're a mindset coach, but it seems like mental performance coach or like an NPC is the most commonly used, but yeah, there's no regulation really. Okay. So how did you come up with the idea for a mindset on mobility? (laughs) Yeah, that's a long story. Okay, so Reader's Digest version, when I was doing my graduate program, and we were going through some of like the counseling and the psychology, I was like, "Mm, a lot of this content is really similar to yoga and, and yoga philosophy or Buddhism or so I started being like this, I could talk about this stuff in a yoga class. So when I was in Ottawa and I was still teaching, I was teaching at the yoga at um, it's now yoga town, I believe in Ottawa. So I just started like talking about it in my yoga classes. And then in Ottawa, I was like, I'm going to make an online program. Uh, And I had put a bunch of stuff together. And again, this is like 2011. So I think it just wasn't the right time for it. And so when I moved to Victoria, I sort of dropped it all. I kind of forgot about it. I did some mental performance coaching with like Camosun College when I arrived, but nothing online and nothing really with yoga. And then um, when I started seeing um, the boyfriend that I'm seeing now, he was always doing Ramwad. So I don't know if you've heard of Ramwad. It's like big in the CrossFit community. Mm -hmm. So I would see him. So first of all, he's like, oh, I don't like yoga. So I'd like see him doing Ramad and I'm like, mm, like, uh, that's yoga you're doing. And, or like, I would hear that in the CrossFit community is like, Oh, like I hate yoga. But then like Ramad, um, it's like, Oh no, this is like 
you know, crouching lizard pose. I'm like, "Mm, no, that's pigeon. And it's been around for hundreds of years. That's yoga. So I was watching him sort of do Ramwad. And while he was doing it, he was just like scrolling on his phone, like on social media. And I just remember, like, I'd be like, what a waste of time. Like you could be doing other things with your time. You could, if you don't want to sit there, like, I don't know, like read a book. Like it's just a waste of time to be scrolling social media. And then that's where it sort of started. I started talking about it with him was that maybe, maybe there's something here. And I actually forgot entirely that I had tried launching something when I was in Ottawa. And then I was going through a bunch of my papers, um, like not that long ago. And I saw all of my notes for like, this is my target market. This is, here's like ideas for classes. So, um, so it's sort of been in the works for a while, I would say, but, um, yeah, just recently, I mean, I've only really been at it for just about a year, maybe a year and a half now, but that's where it all, that's like my origin story. (laughs) Right. And so do you want to give a, just a brief description on what mindset on mobility is? Yeah. So if I had to give like a 30 second elevator pitch, I would just say that mindset on mobility is an online mental performance course or training system where you learn about mental performance while you're essentially going through a yoga class. So that's it in a nutshell. So it's basically everything that I learned during my master's program, everything that I would do if I was on a one-on-one client with a one-on-one client or a group, um, except for you're going through a yoga class. I think a lot of people sort of zone out, especially if you're doing yoga at home, like it's so easy just to not pay attention to something. So instead of like your classic yoga, like "Mm, just pay attention to your breath, or I'm going to talk about a story. uh, You're just learning about sports psychology or mental performance. Awesome. That's such a good idea too, because personally I don't stretch as much as I should, but when I do, I do the same thing. I scroll through my phone or I put on like a Netflix video and it's just that time could be used so much more efficiently doing something. Yeah. And I'm like the type of person that I, like, I hate wasting time. Like I hate it. So if like, I can save five minutes driving home, like I'm going to save five minutes or if I can like do something like multitask and a multitasking isn't really a thing, but if I can listen to a podcast while I'm walking or I can, you know, get multiple things done at once, like I'm a hundred percent going to do it. So to me, I just think it's such a good use of your time. If you want to be good at anything like mental performance is important and a lot of people just don't have time. Like we barely have enough time to stretch. Most people will say like, oh, I don't have enough time or I don't do it as much as I could or should. So why not like combine these two things that are going to help your performance in two very different ways, but get them done at the same time. So sort of like my own, I'm like marketing to myself, <laughs> but, uh, but I think like a lot of athletes or people who take their fitness seriously can relate. It's like, oh my God, I got to get eight hours of sleep. I got a meal prep. I got to go to get a massage. I've got to go to the chiropractor. I got to go to physio. I got to, you know what I mean? There's all these things that we're supposed to do. And some of the things like stretching and mindset are the easiest things just to chop off and, and not do. So it's my hope that, you know, by combining two of them it makes it a little more appealing to actually, to actually do it. So you originally started this as sort of an athletic endeavor, like mindset coaching for athletes, but do you see areas in the Canadian forces where this would be beneficial? Yeah. So I was, I was sort of thinking about this. I mean, I think it's beneficial for anyone. Like I have a lot of people that are like, you should put something together for business, for organizations. So any, literally anyone can benefit from like taking control of your thoughts, having distraction control, like visualizing, but something that I think, well, all militaries, military members have to do is the force test. And, um, I know a lot of people don't take the force test as seriously. I do. Are you uh, a platinum lady? Uh, yeah. So I, uh, so yeah, I'm, I've been, I'm trying, I'm reaching for the perfect score. So every time I've done it, I've scored 399 out of 400. Uh, so I'm trying to get that perfect score. Um, but it's not that I like train for the force test. <laughs> I don't change my training, but I do a ton of mental prep for it. And this is something that I literally, I think anyone who wants to do well on the force test could do. Um, and there's a couple of things. So one, I come up with, uh, preset things I'm going to say to myself, um, whether it's like, you know, a little like, like, let's go or like move it. Like I have mm. things 
I know I just did my force test a couple of weeks ago and I, on like the loaded, unloaded shuttles, I, I caught myself being like, why are you walking so slow right now when you have like the bag? And then I was like, move it. So, and I like, it just like snapped me into it to like move a little bit faster, but something that I think would be really useful for anyone, or if, even if you have a job in the military that requires you to like go through a set of motions is visualization and visualization is like your brain doesn't really know the difference between thinking and doing. So when you're thinking your way through something, you're actually creating connections in your brain. It's like a mental fire drill. So then, you know, you're not doing the force test every day. You do it once a year. So it's, it just allows you to sort of familiarize yourself with tasks without actually having to do it. And I mean, that could probably be used for you and like your weapons handling, like going through the motions, mm -hmm. uh, sharpening the skills. So then when you get there, it's like the, your brain is like, Oh, I've been here before. And I can time, I'll time myself for the force tests um, through my visualization. And my times are very similar to what I get actually like on the floor. So I think that I think literally if anyone wants to take the force test seriously, and you know, you don't want to go out there and do lifts every day. I think as you're leading up to it, and again, it's not something I do year round, you know what I mean? I booked my force test however many weeks ago, and I was like, okay. Every day I'm going to visualize going through each of the, each of the movements. I'm going to time myself. So, you know, lifts, I'm going to get them done in whatever, 51 seconds. So I'm going to set a timer and I'm going to make sure that I go back and forth. And then if I lose focus and I'll start again. So I think that would be a really easy thing for people to do is just like, it's also a way if you are doing a lot of physical training it's like you're, you don't have to burn your body out. You don't have to keep, go through these repetitive motions. You can actually do the training in your mind. Um, and, and it's going to actually help you, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. I remember years ago, I read a book. I think it was called Mind Gym. And it, a lot yeah. of that, it was a guy who coaches a lot of high-end our high-end high-performance athletes yeah. in the NBA and the NFL and baseball players. And one of the common themes among the ones who were sort of at the very top was that they all used visualization. Yeah. And I mean, if you watch any sort of professional athlete on, on at the Olympics or, you know, before a game, like you'll see people like closing their eyes and like going through the motions. And it's not just, it's actually like science-based research. Like they've hooked athletes up with like electrodes to their head, like muscles, like so they can detect if the muscles are actually activating and the, the brain waves will be very similar. They won't be as strong as if you were actually, you know, doing a downhill ski, ski but it, they'll be very similar in the patterns to if you're just sitting there versus actually doing it. Yeah. And especially for things, I think really technical things too, where, or like you said, weapons handling, or even, you know, going through like pre-dive checks on your dive yeah. gear, anything like that. It's definitely hugely beneficial to do that. Yeah. It's just like mental, mental reps, like mental push-ups, and you're strengthening the connection. So it's like, you don't have to eventually, obviously it doesn't replace physical training. I'm, I, I'm not trying to say that by any means, like you still need to go through the actual motions, but it does strengthen the connections in your brain. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll get you to coach me for the fourth test. I'm still, I suck so much. I have my methods with the walking, with the sandbag. I look like one of those like Olympic speed walkers. I get the hips going <laughs> yeah, and it looks ridiculous. Yeah. It looks so ridiculous, but I always get a really good score on that, but I suck at the rushes and the, the drag. Yeah. The rushes is something I, I spend the most time visualizing the rushes because yeah, that, that down and up. Yeah. And that's actually the easiest one to visualize. Cause it's like done in 30 seconds. So you don't mm -hmm. like need to keep your focus that long. So yeah, I would a hundred percent like see yourself, you know, like three, two, one, go getting up, like touch the line down hands, like, and try mm -hmm. to get your time down, just like going through it in your mind. Yeah. It's, I always feel so awkward trying, trying to get up from the position and then starting to run again. It's just, it I is, think technique yeah. as well. <laughs> it is super awkward and just like flying down, like hitting the floor hard. Like it is, it's not a, it's not my favorite. That's not, for sure. it's not the most graceful. <laughs> no, no, no. So 
I guess one of the other questions that I had was what changes did you see in your, I guess, your life and your performance since you started focusing on, you know, the mental performance? Yeah, I think really my awareness level has increased a lot in terms of like recognizing when I'm, you know, being really critical of myself. I am, I'm incredibly self-critical. Like I'm really, if like you, most people know, like I'm really self-deprecating, like my self-talk isn't great. Um, But so I think the biggest thing for me is I've learned to recognize it and I've learned the tactics to sort of flip my script. Do I still worry? You know, like, do I still say like really mean things to myself? Like, yes. But I think that's been the biggest thing is like, wow, like recognizing what an asshole I'm being to myself and like how, what my self-talk is and then knowing what to do to sort of flip the switch. That's probably been the biggest thing. And then, I mean, mental performance in itself, like there's a lot of, a lot about breath control, a lot about mindfulness, a lot about meditation, and I, I mean, I, I had that already through yoga, but I would say that would be the next piece is like learning to calm myself down or learning to control my breath or like helping myself fall asleep at night by like trying to get a, get control of my thoughts because I'm definitely someone who's, who spends a lot of time in my head. So that's been the biggest thing I would say personally for myself. With the Myers-Briggs, what's your results? I'm an INFJ. Okay. Okay. Interesting. I'm yeah, an so, INTJ. You, oh, are you? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, when I did first did mine, so I did the course to like how to do the test for other people. And I remember our instructor being like the classic military, military person is an ESTJ. Okay. So, she, so it's literally almost opposite of me. So she's like, what are you doing in the military? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you're not yeah, supposed like to be it. here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. So you're, so you were an ISTJ? INTJ. INTJ. So you're yeah. like half, half and half. Yeah. So it's very, apparently it's really not common in women. Yeah. It's so funny. Cause I was listening to this interview with this woman from the States who had gone and she's a nurse now, but she had gone and done all this stuff and all these military courses and just kind of listening to her. I, I just felt like I was almost listening to myself at some times. And then I yeah. looked on her LinkedIn and I saw at the bottom of that she was an INTJ. So I was like, oh, I guess that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like, yeah. But, that is, I think that is pretty rare because that means you're thinking, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of, I think a lot of women would be feeling and not Mm -hmm. like in the sense of like feeling, but in the the sense that like, you're probably very objective and you take your, when you're looking at a situation, you take yourself out of the situation and look in. Whereas if you're feeling, you like put yourself in. I think everyone who knows me would probably describe me as being not (laughs) emotional or like (laughs) robotic or whatever that too. But it's so interesting just talking about the mindset coaching when I was in, I guess it would have been junior high. I started playing tennis competitively. I had always kind of played for fun growing up, but I had never taken it seriously or gone in tournaments. And then I really started getting into it in junior high and I kind of improved pretty quickly and was thinking like, okay, this is my sport, but my mindset was so terrible and I would beat myself up so bad and just had like the worst negative self-talk. And I ended up quitting, which I still regret to this day, but I just think, you know, if I'd had something like that, like what could I have done? Yeah. And I think that's so like, that's the same for me. Like there wasn't, when I was in high school, there were a hundred percent, well, maybe there were sports psychologists or mental performance consultants. I don't know. I didn't have access to Mm -hmm. them. So I I relate like the amount of times I've been like, oh my God, if I had these tools when I was 16 and now I, now I work with these young girls and like the opportunities that they have. Uh, And it is such a big thing, like, especially keeping women, young women in sport Mm -hmm. is is hard to begin with, but like when those thoughts creep in and now they have social media and they're constantly, you know, pulled in these other directions, like it's so important that they recognize like what's going on in their, in their head and how that impacts everything. So, yeah, so it sucks. Like it, it got to the point for you where, where you kind of pulled the plug. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just at that point. But now looking back, like you said, and like you do, I I do have negative self-talk at some points, but I'm pretty good at being self-aware now. And I do obviously like watch videos and read books and all of that stuff on 
personal development and mindset and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And I, like, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really common. I don't think it's talked about that much, um, how critical we are to ourselves. There's like this diagram in sports psychology. It's, it's called like circles of attention. And it basically walks through these different areas that we can be distracted with. And the furthest circle, the furthest area is like, when you start thinking, what am I doing here? Like, mm -hmm. which, which obviously causes people to quit all the time. So when you when you catch yourself or when someone is at the point where they're like, what am I even doing here? Like, I don't belong here. You're literally the farthest point away from where you should be focusing. So if you don't have those skills to like bring yourself back, then yeah, that's where people sort of pull shoot or they, and they exit the sport, which is just super sad in my opinion. Yeah. And I saw that quote or thing online that said, would you speak to someone else the way you speak to yourself sometimes? And it's true. Like I'll say the worst shit to myself that I would never say to anyone else, but it's like, well, why am I saying that to myself? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something that's like, if, if your thoughts were broadcast on a loudspeaker, like, would you be proud of them? And I think a lot of people would be like, well, like, <laughs> not really. <laughs> But yeah, but it is, it's just like our, our nature to be critical and, and especially people that are striving to be really great or striving for goals. Like it's part of wanting more out of yourself. So there's a lot of good things that can come out of it, but just recognizing, you know, when it, when it's getting dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because part of that is what drives people and gets them to improve. Right. Because yeah. if you're just always satisfied with what you can do, then we wouldn't have, you know, Usain Bolt running his yeah. times. Right. So it's like yeah. such a fine line between giving yourself that not maybe negative talk, but like a little bit of a boost or maybe some negative talk sometimes yeah. to motivate you to do a little bit better or to keep training or whatever yeah. it is, but then not to the extent that it's detrimental. Yeah. And I mean, everyone's so different. I remember one of my profs that he worked with a, um, like a mountain biker, like downhill mountain racer. And they were like really trying to work on his self-talk. He was really critical and, um, it like, wasn't working. He was like, I can't, I can't change my thoughts. Like I, I can't stop thinking negatively about myself. And then, so like, they, they just were like, okay, like, let's move on. And then a couple of weeks later, this guy like calls and he was like, oh my God, like I figured it out. He's like, I just started yelling it out loud. All these like negative things, like you suck. Like, so his competitors probably thought he was talking to them, but he was like, I just needed to like get it out. But like for some people it motivates them and it pushes them. Uh, so everyone's really different, but I do think it is, like you said, it's a fine line. It's like, is this helping me? And knowing yourself and enough to be like, no, this is what lights a fire under me. Um, like I need to do this. Or if you're at the point where it's like, you are so self-critical of yourself that you're not performing, you're, you know, choking in pressure situations, or you don't want to compete in the, in the first place. Like it is everyone's so different. And that's the thing about mental performance is like, there's so much self-experimentation because it's probably like nutrition, not that I know anything about nutrition, but like, like paleo works really well for some people and vegetarianism works really well for other people, but you need to sort of do the work to figure out like, where do you lie on that spectrum? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good way of putting it. Now to get on the topic of you. So what are your career and personal goals for the future? Yeah. So, um, this one is, uh, this one's tough. I thought a lot about it. I, I don't have anything really concrete, um, other than like me knowing like the calf, the calf probably isn't the end game for me. I just found out actually the beginning of December that, um, I'm getting promoted. So that's sort of like a check of one of my career goals. So I never really thought that I would reach the, the rank of major. So that's like, that's something I'm like, okay, I'm happy with that. Could I, could I move on from the calf and do something different now that I've achieved this? So maybe, uh, so I, I guess like time will tell, I guess it'll depend like how much I like my next job and, and being at that rank. Obviously, as you move up in rank, you, you get more responsibility. So in terms of my professional or career goals, like I'm going to do this next stint as a major and then really see where it goes and see if the cap is something that I want to continue doing. But I would say it's probably not the last stop for me. And are you reg force or reserve? I'm reg force. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, and then are you someone who sets sort of personal goals, like fitness goals, like I'm going to run a race or do this sort of thing? Yeah, I'm incredibly goal oriented, <laughs> like incredibly. I am very like the J in the MBTI. I'm very to-do list orientated. I Every day I set myself a to-do list that I have like, you know, things I want to get accomplished in a week. I have fitness goals. So yeah, as of right now, like it's, it's tough, even though I would love to say like, oh, I'm going to run a triathlon or do a triathlon, but really like fitness wise, I'm just trying to get control of my shoulder so I can get back to, I would love to get back to doing CrossFit again. I would love to compete again in a CrossFit competition. But for me personally, I just, I need to get healthy in terms of what, uh, getting my shoulder and, and being able to actually lift like normal weight over my head. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I think goals are incredibly important and in the sports psych literature, like they're one of the most researched, there's the, the most, uh, validation behind goal setting theory. So I am really driven by like, Hey, this is where I want to be. And here are the steps that I'm going to take to get there. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, so yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I was having a beer with my friend over the Christmas break and he's like, so what's next for you? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, you're all, you always have a goal or like something that you're training for or something that you're going to do. And I was like, yeah, I, I guess so. Like for me, it just, I find I have to do that. I have to have something that I'm working towards or else I almost start slipping in the mental health wise, like just feeling yeah. a bit depressed and stuff. I need to have a, a direction that I'm going in. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm the same way. If I don't have a goal, I start to feel like, yeah, I suffer mentally for sure. I get so much of a kick of like checking something off a to-do list. <laughs> um, but yeah, in terms of like career goals, I, yeah, I, I don't, I think there's a lot of uncertainty. I have things that I, in my mind, like I, I just applied to physio school. So that would be something that, um, maybe is coming down but it's just like, it's hard with the military. There's so much uncertainty and, and, you know, you put things out there on what you want, which I've done now. And now it's just a matter of, you know, they, they control your fate a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I guess time will, time will tell with that. Okay. And what advice would you give to women wanting to join the Canadian forces or any military? Yeah. So uh, I think honestly, like it's such a good opportunity for someone who joined later. I joined when I was 30, you know, having an equal opportunity employer experiences that you will not ever have anywhere else. Um, and really like when I think about women joining the CAF in general, like what I hear the most from women is like, oh, like I'm not hardcore enough to do that. Or like, I, or I'm not strong enough to be in the military. And it's just like, I think, or I'll tell these girls, like I was literally a yoga teacher <laughs> before I joined. Like I literally owned a yoga studio. I cried at basic training. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not hardcore. And I don't think you need to be hardcore uh, in order to join and have a really good career. I think there's such a wide variety of people and a wide variety of occupations that you literally can find something that'll suit, you know, your education, your personality. And then for anyone, like, especially women, like you said, there's not a lot of opportunities to play sports, you know, after high school, or if you went to college and you didn't play in college, or maybe you played in university and now you don't play sports in university. It's like, what a great opportunity to come and and get to sort of re-enter that world again. And even if you're not on a sports team, like, you know, a volleyball team or a basketball team, it's just like the military is like a big team. And, you know, you can meet someone like I, I, I meet you and I automatically know we have things in common. I automatically know like we're going to be able to talk about something. So I think it's is such a unique opportunity for anyone, let alone women, even if you don't do it your entire career, it's like, what a great experience you can get if you sign up for four years and, you know, maybe travel Canada, maybe travel the world, maybe just meet a bunch of really unique people from across Canada. So anyways, my advice in a nutshell would be like, you do not need to be hardcore to join the military. You do not need to be super strong. Yes, we have a fitness test, but it's just like, if you can get your there, yourself there physically and, and physicality is something you can train, then I think it's a really good opportunity. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That's great advice. <laughs>
And where can people find you on social media or the web or your podcast? Yes. So um, I primarily hang out on Instagram. So Mindset on Mobility is uh, probably where I'm most active. I have a personal account, uh, Megs McD, but it's usually just dogs. <laughs> My dogs and hiking. So if you're not into that, you probably won't like it. I have a website. It's mindsetonmobility.com. And then I have a, a podcast. It's not nearly as good as this one, but um, it's called Me Search. And it's basically trying to dig into what makes people great and what, what habits or what attributes or what people are doing in their lives to achieve, you know, whatever, whatever they've achieved in their life. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. You have some really good episodes. I was listening to those and I, you know, not that I have a a degree in psychology or anything like that, but I do like sort of nerding out about some of that stuff. Yeah, I try to like every once in a while, I'll do like a solo cast um, is what I call it, Uh, but where I'll just like talk about a sports psych concept, Um, Mm -hmm. but I'm still super new. Like, I think I've only done like 10 episodes or something like that, but yeah, it tries to put a sports psych or a mental performance spin on whatever it is that I'm talking about with someone. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's very nice to see your face. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to help support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review on your Apple podcast app.